or to read them when they when we get there and show you how they're pieced together. But the first place we want to start is is Genesis chapter three, and we'll be there uh, in a few moments. But um, before we begin the sermon, let's pray together. Lord, we're here to to hear your word. We're a culture of words. Words are always on a screen in front of our eyes, on a magazine, a billboard. Words coming out of an, an iPod or radio speaker. Words spoken, words received, words read. We have a preacher inside of our head, each of us. That speaks to us even as um, this sermon is being spoken. And we talk to ourselves. We analyze. We, we agree with. We hold on to certain, certain words. And so we are saying this morning, confessing this morning, there's a lot of noise, a lot of background noise in our mind today. And we might easily miss your word because there's not enough stillness in our soul to really hear an eternal truth. So my prayer, Lord, is that you would come and and you would just blow away all the noise so that we could hear your still, small voice. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to do is uh, plug this book, Far as the Curse is Found, by Michael Williams. This is a book that I'm going to be using for the next uh, series, really for the whole whole uh, school year. So I'm not going to quote Michael every time I quote Michael, but when you read the book, you'll say, gosh, that's just like Paul's sermon. Uh, so I'm just letting you know, if you want to follow along in the series, it's not exact chapter by chapter, but this will be a really helpful book for you as you try to think about the whole Bible, which is what we're going to try to do in this next series. There's a professor, a very famous professor at Oxford, England, in the 1950s, his name is C.S. Lewis. Most of you know him as the author of Mere Christianity or the Chronicles of Narnia or Screwtape Letters, a number of other places. He was a very famous Christian apologist as well as an English professor in Oxford. And he once had a conversation with a friend. And when he was with this friend, he sort of wondered, wondered out loud what would happen if a, a group of friendly and inquisitive Martians decided to come down to Oxford. And in coming down to Oxford, they, they appeared and asked what Christianity is. So these friendly and inquisitive Martians came down, and they were wondering what Christianity is. And Lewis said, all the people who weren't scared away, uh, if they came and asked the people in Oxford what Christianity is, could they get very much accurate information? Lewis's conclusion On the whole, I doubt whether the Martians would take back to their world much that is worth having. Now, I would make a similar assessment if Martians landed in Wilmington. If a group of friendly and inquisitive Martians landed in Wilmington and asked what Christianity is, I doubt they would take back much of, of, of much value. But sadly, I think 
not if they just landed in Wilmington, if they landed in many churches in Wilmington. Many people would have a hard time really explaining what is Christianity. Would, would a Martian come in and say, well, I, I understand it. I'm taking something back of value. And we, we say, or sometimes it's referred to, Christians are referred to as people of the book. We're people of this, of this book. But we have a problem. We don't really understand what the book is all about. So many times we, we think of the book as God's greatest hits. Or best of Yahweh. And so some sort of collection of greatest hits that you, you start with VBS and you get sort of a collection of hits. And then as you grow older, you have a little bit bigger playlist. Oh yeah, I got another story I know about the Bible, but we really don't understand how it all fits together. It's just a, a greatest hits sort of book or worse, the Bible is reduced to wristbands keychains and crocheted plaques hanging in your kitchen all containing some phrase some bible verse or part of a bible verse i can do all things as for me and my house i know the plans i have for you so although knowing the bible stories and certainly knowing certain bible verses is helpful it's very common to know these things but not know the whole And so this school year, our next series is trying to understand the whole. And how we're going to do that is for the fall, we're going to look at the book of Genesis. And so that helps sort of uh, create a foundation from which we can operate for the rest of the Bible. And then in the winter and the spring, we'll very quickly go through the rest of the story of, uh, of the Bible. And so that'll take us all the way till May, Lord willing. And so our, 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 our sense is there's one grand narrative. If you're in uh, English cir- circles, it's called a meta-narrative, this big overarching story that's from beginning to end of the Bible. It's not a series of stories. It's not cherry-picking certain verses. It's this one grand narrative. And so before we, we step into the Bible, it's important to step back and see the whole one thing I love about my iPhone is the GPS. I don't know how often you find yourself using your iPhone for a GPS, but I don't know where I'm going, so I, you know, I just plug in the address. And here's, the, here's why I really like the way it operates. The first thing it does is it shows me where I am and where I'm going to end up. It has one, one screen, and it says, okay, Paul, you're here, and you're going to go to this place. And so that really helps me because I like to have something in my mind. I have, like to have this road map to say, okay, here's where I am and this is where I'm planning on, on arriving. And then you hit the navigation button and you know what happens next. It zooms down and says, okay, take a right on this street just ahead, 500 yards ahead. And so you zoom down into a particular story. Uh, but before we zoom down into this particular story of the Bi- these particular stories of the Bible, we want to kind of zoom back out when we want to see the entire roadmap all at one time. One of the best ways to understand the Bible is to see it as this unfolding drama. Theologians like to have uh, fancy words for things, and they call it the drama of redemption. It's this unfolding story in every drama whether it's the game of thrones or gray's anatomy or the bible 
Every drama has a particular pattern. There's usually four sort of foundational elements to every drama. First, there's the prologue. It's where you get introduced to the characters. The, the stage is set for the rest of the story. And then pretty quickly, there's some kind of conflict. There's some kind of tension. Something happens in the story. You, you got used to people, but something gets introduced that's usually something that creates tension or conflict. And something has to happen because of this conflict. And the third stage is it gets resolved. There's a tension that gets introduced and we need to resolve that tension. Of course, all that works out nicely in about 45 minute show on television. So you set the stage. There's some kind of conflict that gets introduced. And then you have to have some kind of resolve. The conflict has to be dealt with. It has to be met head on in some kind of fashion. And then, of course, there's the conclusion. Did everything turn out okay in the end? What happened to the main characters? I mean, after the conflict and the resolve, what kind of, what kind of relationships do they have? What, what things changed? Many Bible scholars see this drama of redemption unfolding in the same pattern in the Bible. And they see it in these four stages, creation, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So if, there's a, if the Bible is an unfolding drama of redemption, it follows this same pattern of dramas. There's the creation. There's the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The, the main character in the drama is introduced, and the main character is? It's God. It's not us. See, a lot of times people say, okay, the main character gets introduced. That's, that's Adam and Eve. No, 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 no. The main character gets introduced in the prologue, and that person is Jesus, our God. He never leaves the stage. He, he never relinquishes being the dominant character on the stage. And in the prologue of Genesis 1 and 2, we, we read that God created this wonderful universe, and he set the stage. And when he set the stage, he said, it's perfect. It's just like I wanted it. It couldn't possibly get any better. And at the pinnacle of his creation is Adam and Eve, is, is humanity. It's the only thing created in his image. And so he, the Adam and Eve, they're the pinnacle. They're, they're the ones that God is, has put his image on. And when he sets them in the garden, and they were supposed to rule and reign over his creation as sort of vice presidents or vice regents, he looks at it and says, everything's very good. Unfortunately, and very quickly in Genesis 3, there's a conflict. And it's a conflict of cosmic proportions. It's hard. It's very hard for us to get our minds wrapped around it. God had given rule and reign, of course, underneath him, but rule and reign to humanity and said, hey, I want you guys to act like me. You're going to govern. You're going to rule. You're going to manage this creation. I'm going to I'm going to be there. You're going to get information from me. But because you're in my image, you have a certain responsibility to creation and mankind, Adam and Eve. Uh, decided that they would rather rule and reign over God instead of God ruling and reigning over them. And so they decided to either we would prefer by taking the apple and disobeying God. Basically, that what they were saying is, God, we just like for you to exit the stage. You know, we're in control now. We got it. 
Thank you for all the input, but we just like for you to, to, to leave and we'll take care of our lives. We'll control the world. Everything's in safe hands, God. Or worse, God, we need you to stay on the stage, but you do what we want to say, what, what we say. I mean, we need sort of your extra power. So every once in a while, we're going to call on you to come in and sort of clean things up. And that's, we'd really like to be God and you be like our superhero, comes in and cleans up stuff. That's, that's the fall. And as I said, it's, it's impossible to really get our minds around this, this horrifying conflict that we as humans introduced to God's perfection. Because it wasn't just the fall of male and female, it was the fall of, of all of creation. In Genesis 3, the entire creation is drawn into the mutiny of the human race. Death, desperation, or enter into God's perfect created order. And, and everyone here, you know, whatever your belief system is, you know things aren't the way they should be. Many of you, I'm sure, saw the, the picture a photograph of the immigrant from Syria trying to make it into Turkey. This, they have this massive immigration problem. And they take this dangerous journey across the sea just trying to get to the, another shore because they can't live in Syria anymore and they're stacked up on the border so they risk their lives. These families get in the boat and they just try to make it to any shore. And this little three-year-old boy, he didn't make it. And there's this nice, really nice resort beach. And this three-year-old just in the surf, face down, face in the sand. He's got a red shirt on, blue shorts, a pair of black shoes. And the water's just washing up and washing back. And the tourists are on the beach. You look, just as soon as you look at it, you go, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It reminded me of a photo in 1993 that a few of you will remember in the Sudan when there was a great um, uh, famine. A little boy sort of kneeling down in a kind of a dirt field about 20 yards behind him. And this picture is a vulture. The photographer took 30 minutes to set up his equipment just to get this picture. He won a Pulitzer Prize for the picture. He was so disturbed that he won an award and never helped the kid. And that he shot himself. You see, something has happened and something has massively gone wrong. And I could list, and you know, story after story, and you could list them about things that have happened to you. And so this great perfection got totally the death and destruction entered in because we decided, no, we would rather be God and, and we want to, t- to take control and it's turned into chaos. See, we're not involved in like a, an hour long TV drama that everything gets tied up, that everything works out okay in the end so quickly. And this desperation and death can get so bad that you can think, and I can think, 
I wonder if there's even a God anymore. Thankfully, praise God, there is hope. That's not the end of the story. It doesn't just end in Genesis chapter 3. Although it could have, God doesn't exit the stage. He's not taking directions from you and I. Praise God, he's not. Instead, God immediately engages the rebels. He's immediately walking back into the situation because he has one unstoppable goal. Nothing, no one can get in front of his goal. And that is he has the resolve to restore his good creation. And you and I can't get in the way of that. That is going to happen. It's going to happen just as God has it happen in whatever time frame he has. But somebody has to enter the story. Someone big enough to bridge this gap, this canyon between humanity and God. And humanity has fallen so far that we can't possibly get up. And so God sees our death and desperation and our need of a Savior, so he sends himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the God-man, as Lewis says, he's the, he is the chapter in the plot of the, in which the whole Bible story turns. Once Jesus enters in, you realize he's actually the center of the whole thing from the beginning to the end. Jesus' death purchase us for God. He, he absorbs all the punishment that we deserve. And his resurrection is proof that something has happened and he is going to restore the, the creation again. He, it, the resurrection is the receipt of some greater resurrection in the end. You know this. You've been to Walmart, haven't you? You go, come out, the, the, the lady or the man is standing there, welcome to Walmart, and then you come out, can I see your receipt? I want to make sure you paid for the goods. And the resurrection is the receipt. The receipt that Jesus says, I have the power alone to conquer death, to put things back together, and you need to look to me and trust me that if you would follow me, I'm coming back and this whole thing is going to be restored. And one day, God's going to look at creation again, and he's going to say, it's very good. It's very good. And he's going to accomplish that through Jesus. And when he comes back, that's going to be the consummation of this timeline. So we have the creation, we have the fall, we have redemption, and we have consummation. That's the gospel. In case you've never heard the gospel, you just heard it. And that is good news. When the angels come in Luke chapter 2, can you believe it? In four months, we're going to be sitting here talking about that. Angels have come and saying, I bring you good, good news. This death and destruction that you brought upon yourself, God's coming in to reverse the curse. Michael Williams in his book says, Jesus is the conqueror of death because he is none other than the creator of life. The wound of the garden is healed. On the resurrection morning, God was able to again say what he had exclaimed over his creation so long ago. It is good. It is, it is very good. So if you can think of these categories, again, we're stepping back trying to see this whole narrative, this drama of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, redemption and consummation. And, and there's lots of ways to, to try to draw that whole picture out. But I want to do it this morning by looking at four different meals. 
four different meals. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Genesis chapter 3, 2 through 6. Let's read this together. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. So this is the first meal recorded in the Bible. It comes right after the first marriage. If you just let your eyes wander back up to chapter 2, verse 23, 24, this is the first marriage. God is the, is the father. He's bringing the bride to the groom, Adam, and it's just this great marriage. And now after the marriage, we have this meal. But this meal destroys the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve. And this meal destroys this marriage between God and humanity. Somehow, the serpent duped Adam and Eve into believing that God was withholding something good. There's something else that he's not giving you. And if you just had it, man, you'd be living then. Somehow, this same message that we're very familiar with, especially today. Life is short, so have an affair. I know you're married to God, but life is short and you're missing out on something. So let's just leave the person who's our creator and try to make it happen on ourselves. And what's a disaster for thousands of families today is a disaster for all of humanity at this first meal. This this one time affair detonated death and destruction that has Covered all of the human timeline. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. This is our second meal we want to look at. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. This is the Passover meal. In this manner... This is God giving instructions. You shall eat it. You shall eat the Passover in this way with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike Egypt. A great disconnection happened from God's people in the garden. And God's people become enslaved. Sin enslaves people. 
And so here we find God's people, they're enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt. This Pharaoh has taken over their lives and made them slaves as sin takes over people's lives and makes them slave. And these people are crying out and they're saying, God, we need someone holy enough like you, someone powerful enough like you to rescue us from this enemy. It's, they're too powerful. We can't rescue ourselves. But at the same time, we know we're not perfect. So when you come down, we're going to need protection. See, we're not saying we're perfect and those are the bad guys. We know we're all the bad guys. And when you come down, if you just come down in holiness, everybody gets wiped out. So when you come down, we're going to need some kind of protection. What is that protection? It's the blood of a lamb. That if you put it over your doorpost, meaning I've trusted in Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible, then death passes over you. God provides a perfect lamb at this meal who sacrifices his blood to protect those who trust in God from the wrath of God. This, this second meal is a sign of a greater Passover lamb, as we know, who one day will come do the, and do the same thing. He's going to sacrifice himself, that everyone who puts themselves under him, death will pass over. And we find this in Luke chapter 22. This is our third meal, Luke 22. This is the meal that we're celebrating here It's communion. We're 1,500 years later from the first Passover meal. Jesus is now in the upper room. He's sitting with his disciples. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. When you come to this table, Jesus talks about the bread and the wine, but he doesn't talk about the lamb because the lamb isn't on the table. The lamb is at the table. He's going to be the one who sacrifices himself for people to be saved from God's wrath. See, if you don't understand the whole, when you get to this picture, you don't really understand what's going on. You have a neat little story, but you don't understand how it fits in this bigger narrative. The way God's pressing through time, pressing through history to bring things about. And we're going to come to this final meal, Revelation 19, verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6 is another meal. And it's a meal after another marriage. Connecting what's happened in Genesis chapter 3. Then I heard, verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. I don't know if you've ever been in a stadium when, you know, you saw the greatest play you've ever seen or, you know, something's happened. Maybe it's a rock concert and, 
you know, the person starts the one song that everybody, you know, knows. What, well, you know, what are, you know, have you, have you know that feeling? I mean, you feel more alive at that little moment than any other time. You're like, yeah, you want to just jump up and scream? That's what this, mo- that's a shadow of what this moment's going to be like. It's going to be voices like a, a peal of thunder. Roaring waters like a sound of mighty thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we have a marriage, and now we have one last meal. And this marriage detonates joy. Somehow, in a way only God can accomplish, all the wounds in this world began to lose their sting. I, I cannot say how that's going to happen. But somehow his marriage is going to detonate in a way that's going to cover over all the terrible things that you've seen happen and has happened to you in your life. I was at a wedding reception several years ago, and it was one of these places where it just seemed like for me it all came together it was a a couple who had met that were college students and after they got out of college um, they were young life leaders they got married they got married down at Wrightsville Beach and they had a reception that was at a big house on the beach and so there's wine and there's song and there's dancing and I happened to get a cool table out front on the deck the moon is coming up over the ocean And I'm sitting there at a round table, just crammed full of all these people who we'd worked so hard together trying to help people know who Jesus was. And we had, we made tons of mistakes. We got hurt all time, all the time. And we had a few victories. And we're sitting around this round table and I'm sitting there and I feel like I had this sort of out of body experience. It wasn't mystical. I'm just saying. I kind of like left my body and looked at this scene and thought, this, this, is what, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to sit around with people that we, we made a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of pain, a lot of frustration, some victory. But at this point, you know what? All those mistakes became great stories. All those wounds oozed out joy instead of pain. And so that's this last meal. That's we're we're in the timeline that we're heading for this last meal with Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis ends his stories in the Chronicle of Narnia. Very last page, if you want to read it for yourself. The last battle. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.
See, see that's, that's what we're heading for. And so if you're here this morning, we're going to take communion here in just a moment. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my, my question for you to consider as you sit while we take communion is to just ask you, what's your story? You've got to have something in your head that makes sense of your life in this world. There's some way that you've pieced together a story. And, and I would just ask, are you interested in hearing more about the story of the Bible? And if you are, I would implore you to find me or somebody on staff here that could help you understand who Jesus is. If you're here as a Christian, you're a believer. See, Jesus knew that even the believers at some point would be under such duress that they might think Jesus doesn't care about them anymore. Or Jesus isn't coming back. Or God isn't real. So he said, hey, when you get together, let's remember. Let's remember that one day, very soon, you and I be sitting around a table saying, yeah. Oh, it was worth it. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to the.